Today we are reaching the fifth church in our series on the seven churches in Revelation. We come to Sardis. Today's message uh, is titled very simply, Church of the Living Dead. Now when I first published this title of this week's sermon, someone online asked me, will this be about zombies? So without further ado, even though that might be an interesting topic for a message, I say sorry to Anthony, this has nothing to do with zombies. But we're going to talk about the living dead, and that's dead churches that look alive. So what exactly are the signs of a dead, dying church? I mean, is it a church with declining attendance? I mean, so tiny that it literally goes out of existence? Uh, is it a church that's been torn by controversy for years and and uh, on and truly a living church? Or what about a church that's so comfortable that there's no place for new people? Or what about a church that has no zeal for the lost? Can it truly be called the living church of Jesus? Or what about a church whose best days happened a generation ago and still lives off past glories? Now, whenever I pass a church, I ask myself a question. I just, I was going to wonder whether this church is alive or dead. I'm kind of wondering what, what goes on in that church. Now, it seems to me that the question is easier to ask than it is to answer. After all, the church is open for business. Something must be happening there. Uh, they probably have a worship service. They probably have a Sunday school, maybe a Bible class or small groups or, you know, a choir or a worship team of some sort, uh, youth ministries, women's groups. Uh, programs for kids, whatever. So the question is, is that church living or is it dead? Well, again, it's easier to ask than to answer. And what I've concluded after studying churches for a long, long time is that only the Lord himself knows whether a church is truly dead or alive. Now, a church may seem dead, but have signs of life within it. Or far more ominously, a church may seem to be full of life, but actually be at the point of spiritual death. Now, we're going to get to uh, our next church. You see the map on the screen. Uh, such was the problem at the church of Sardis. Now, when Jesus comes to this church, he makes a rather disquieting diagnosis, though, in verse 1 of our text that Jimmy just read to us. Uh, it says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now, this may be one of the most damning indictments our Lord could ever give to any church. And it's a comment that only he could make. I mean, the church seemed kind of alive and well. It had a good reputation in the community. It was evidently not on the brink of, of closing. I mean, and Christians in other towns or surrounding neighborhoods spoke well of them. Uh, maybe they actually even hosted a How to Be a Missional Community conference. Uh, maybe their pastor has written books or traveled to speak at churches throughout all of Asia Minor. Uh, maybe they were the largest of any of these seven churches. But, but, it is certainly notable that what Jesus does not mention, it does not seem to be suffering persecution. It does not seem to be infected with false doctrine. It has no mention of these mysterious Nicolaitans that we talked about in a couple of the other churches. There's no hint of sexual immorality in the church, as we talked about last week, about having Jezebel in the pulpit. Nor is the church warned about losing its first love. So in some respects, Sardis is the most difficult church to dissect because we really don't know what's going wrong there. And when Jesus speaks of the other churches, he spells out the problem so there's absolutely no confusion. 
But here we're just told simply that things look pretty good on the outside, but it was dying on the inside. Now, strange as that may seem, there is something that can be much worse than false doctrine or sexual immorality or trouble in the church, and it's this. It's a good reputation that is undeserved. Now, perhaps the history of Sardis will give us a little bit of a clue here. Now, years before the writing of the book of Revelation, Sardis had been one of the most important cities in all of Asia Minor, in that, that area we've seen on the map. Now, when Persia uh, controlled the region, Sardis had been the capital, but under the Romans, it had kind of faded into uh, insignificance. So here we have a city whose best days have come and gone, a city living on its reputation of a past generations. I mean, Sardis had been eclipsed by other cities like uh, Ephesus and Pergamum. It was a town living in the past. It was a town living on the past. It seems the church of Sardis had also taken on the character of the city. Now, one writer called the church at Sardis, Sardis the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Now, evidently, the Jews and the Romans didn't bother this church because the church didn't bother them. It was left alone because it lacked the conviction to stir the water and make waves. Although it was apparently active on the outside, on the inside it had become a spiritual graveyard. Now Jesus can make this diagnosis because he reads the hearts and the minds of people who worship in these buildings. Perhaps that's why he is called the one who holds the seven spirits of God. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit who sees all things, who searches every heart. Nothing is hidden from him. Now, all of this ought to be very solemn to us because this church looked very good from the outside. So how does the situation develop where a church with a good reputation turns out to be spiritually dead? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. It's when the past becomes more important than the present. It's when keeping a good reputation matters more than a bold witness for Jesus. It's when religious ritual becomes an end of itself. It's when talking about Jesus uh, matters more than knowing Jesus. It's when convenience trumps sacrifice. It's when appearance matters more than reality. It's when tradition stifles every attempt at innovation. Uh, it's when personal comfort uh, outweighs risky faith. It's when church activity substitutes for a growing walk with God. Now, what strikes me about these things are, uh, are matters of the heart, and they're hard to spot. A church that's dead will often seem quite alive. I mean, no church would ever hang out a sign that says, come worship with us. We ask nothing. We demand nothing. We dare nothing. We dream nothing. In fact, we do nothing. I mean, so what can be done about a dead or dying church? Now, I'm talking about prescriptive today and not descriptive because I don't believe that we are a dying gathering group of people. Well, we get the good news here from the Lord in verse 4. It says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. Yes, God has his people in the most unlikely places. I mean, even in a church like Sardis, there were those people who loved the Lord and served the Lord with a pure heart. It reminds me of Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19. I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, he felt like he was the only faithful servant of God in all of Israel. But God had to call him to action by reminding him that there were 7,000 who still had not bowed their knee to Baal. 
You see, friends, God is not limited by your small vision. This ought to give us hope for even the most forlorn church situations. Now, here's the truth for everyone. You are not in a position to estimate your own effectiveness. See, when you think you've won or lost, well, let God render that verdict. See, we are as likely as Elijah to wrongly estimate our victories and our defeats. I mean, better to just do our best, leave the results to God. So the question is, what's the hope for a spiritually dead or a spiritually dying church? Well, first of all, the church must wake up. Verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, again, we can think of back, back to the city of Sardis, because Sardis was located up on a high plateau. It seemed pretty secure from invasion. But twice in its history, invading armies had scaled the heights at night and captured the city with no problem. So Jesus' admonition to wake up had special meaning to the church in Sardis. And no doubt this congregation had become spiritually lazy. If all is going well, why bother to post a guard on the ramparts? But woe to the church that ceases to keep watch for the enemy, who is First Peter 5, 5 verse 8 says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking some juicy little Christian to eat. Well, as Peter himself found out, Satan often attacks not at our point of weakness, but at the point of our self-perceived strength. So it is for every flock of God's sheep. See, if the devil cannot make a frontal attack, he'll send wolves in sheep's clothing, or he'll cause the sheep to begin biting each other, or he'll get them all bogged down in, in rules and regulations and just kind of lull the sheep to, uh, the, the sheep to sleep, and he'll just pounce with deadly force. In other words, the Sardis spirit overtakes us when we begin to take God's gifts for granted. Now, here's the second thing to remember. The church must return to Jesus before it's too late. Verse 3, it says, Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know what happened and what time I'm come to, I'll come to you. Now, to repent, metanoia in the Greek, it means to change one's mind. And here it involves turning back to the Lord with a whole heart, and nothing is more difficult than for a comfortable church than to repent. Now, most people and most churches don't change unless real pain is involved. We don't pray until we're desperate or in trouble or unless there's no other hope. Now, I'm going to take you back to the patron saint of the Lutheran church, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses, 95 statements, if you will, on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, he intended only to spark a kind of a lively theological debate. Now, little did he know that what he was going to do was to ignite a theological revolution that's called the Protestant Reformation. Now, I want to read to you the first thesis, thesis which rings as true today as it did back in 1517. It goes this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, we don't hear that preached much nowadays, but it needs to be spoken to our generation every bit as much 
as to Luther's. Now, sometimes we wrongly think that repentance uh, is something we do when we first come to Jesus and then we never do it again. My friends, I, I think if you've been coming to, to Restore, you, you know that we, we do that every week we get together. But sometimes we can be so messed up by sin that we, you know, we, just, we, we fail to remember that we need to repent every single day. And we even need to repent of our repentance because we are often worse than we think. Now, if we were going to take a, a guilt scale of, you know, from 1 to 10, where would you put yourself? Now, I, I'd say that a lot of us or most of us might put ourselves at like 5 or 6. I mean, we're, we're, we're sinful, but, you know, we're not as bad as um, those other people. Or maybe on a bad day, we might push 7 or 8, but we hardly ever think of ourselves as a 9 or a 10 on the scale of badness. But the sobering fact is that even the things we brag about, are to the Lord, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, nothing but a bunch of filthy rags, vomitous rags, menstrual rags. Those are different definitions of that phrase. That's why you and I need to pray, Lord, I, I'm even guiltier than I think I am. So, Lord, I, I just plead for your mercy, which I need even more than I know. Now, friends, i just going to remind all of us today, we will never get better unless we confess our brokenness. And that's why we do that each and every Sunday here at Restore. I mean, churches never get better until they do the same. Uh, you know, we can't repent for anyone else. It's the man in the mirror who gets us into trouble. And there is a, a threat if we do not take this seriously. Because Jesus says, if you don't do this, he comes like a thief in the night. And like a thief who shows up when you least expect him. Jesus warns a congregation to wake up or he's going to come and the results will not be happy for that church. See, the church at Sardis, though evidently prosperous and popular, was not ready for the coming of the Lord. The church was, like the city itself, rather comfortable, rather lazy, and spiritually indifferent. It was, in its own way, a true reflection of of the community in which it resided. It seemed alive, but it was truly dead. But Jesus is coming. The question is, are you ready? And I want you to note here as we, we close up the threefold promise to those who choose to overcome. Here's the first promise. They will be dressed in the white robes of victory. Verses 4 and 5. They'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. The second promise is they'll have their names reserved in heaven. Verse 5, I will never blot his name from the book of life. Now, that's a statement of absolute assurance of salvation. The Greek here is a double negative. It literally says, I will never, ever, under any circumstance, blot their names from the book of life. And third, they'll be personally recognized by Jesus. Verse 5, I'll acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Friends, there's no greater reward for the believer than to be known and to be recognized by the Lord. And here we come to the end of this message this week. We should ask ourselves once again, where did the church at Sardis go wrong? And maybe we should ask, what can we do to see to it it never happens here? Well, it was the church of the living dead. 
It was a bastion of death, dead orthodoxy. It was a beehive of what we call religious mediocrity. Its spiritual condition made worse by the fact that it seemed on the surface to be so spiritually alive. And in that sense, it was in much greater peril than the persecuted church of Smyrna or the morally compromised churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. It was even in worse condition than loveless Ephesus. Far worse than persecution from without can be dry rot from within. See, the church was lazy because the people were lazy. And that can happen to any of us. It can happen to any church, anytime, anywhere. And maybe the Lord is speaking today saying, Friends, wake up. Shape up. Repent. Remember what I've done for you and in with in you and through you. See, the Sardis spirit overtakes us whenever we begin to take God's gifts for granted. Now, how quickly we can become the church of the living dead and not even know it. Now, as I said before, it would be better to be an out-and-out pagan than to go through life not really knowing the Lord. At least the pagan knows that he or she is a pagan, but the cultural Christian thinks he's alive when in reality he's dead. Now, friends, God loves the church at Sardis. And he loves the church in Hollister. And he loves the church in Branson West. He loves the people that are in these churches. That's why we need to pray. Lord, start with me. Lord, start with us. Do your work in me. Do your work in us. Wake me up. Wake us up. Stir me. Stir us up to love you and to serve you. So that the world will know that I belong and that we belong to you. Friends, I pray each and every day that God continues to wake us up and to deliver us from ever becoming the church of the living dead so that we might always be known as the church of the living Jesus. How about an amen to that?